John chapter 18. Can you believe I said that? It's a long time in chapter 17, and it was beautiful. We're in chapter 18. We're entering the final section of the Gospel of John. Final section, uh, four chapters, or is that five? 18, 19, 20, 21, four chapters. John introduced us to Jesus in chapter 1 by telling us that Jesus is the eternal Word of God who became flesh, meaning He became a human. And He lived among us, dwelt, He says, pitched a tent among us, lived, that Jesus Christ, the eternal Word of God made flesh, was full of grace and truth. This is how we're introduced to Him. And that He revealed God to us, shows us God's glory. Then he told us about Jesus' ministry. The first 12 chapters of John talked about the signs that Jesus did, those miracles with meanings that showed us his glory and his purpose, that he was sent from God, and the sayings of Jesus, the I am's. We're going to come back to those today. The I am statements, the sayings of Jesus that showed us what kind of a Savior he is. Chapter 13, after the public ministry of Jesus, his signs and his sayings. John brought us into the final night, that setting with Jesus and his disciples, the Passover meal, the foot washing, the encouragements, the instructions about what life was going to be like when Jesus left. And then we entered that most intimate scene of chapter 17, where Jesus was praying now the final night, praying to the Heavenly Father looking back on everything he had taught, looking at these disciples in front of him and, and interceding on their behalf that the Father would keep them. The Father would keep them in him and from the evil one, in faith, in unity. And now the time has come. Chapter 18, the time has come. Is it the time for what? Do you remember Way back in the second chapter of John, when Jesus walked into the temple and cleared it out of merchants and money changers, and they came to Jesus and they said, by what authority? Give us a sign. If you're going to do these things, give us a sign. And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, destroy the temple, and I'll rebuild it. I'll raise it up in three days. Nobody understood him at that time, but Jesus was talking about his body. He was saying, here's the sign I'll show you. Destroy my body through crucifixion and I'll raise it up on the third day. The time has come. John 18 brings us to that point of that final sign. We're going to spend the next several weeks in 18 through 21, as we come to the final section. We're going to see the humility of Jesus. A lot about that today. We're going to see the victory of Jesus on the cross. We're going to see the grace of Jesus in the life of Peter restoring him. We enter today in this final section with the arrest of Jesus. And in this incident, 
We see Jesus as sovereign, absolutely in control. And we also see his submission as he hands himself over. And together, this sovereign, submissive one is our Savior. John 18, 1. Stand with me in honor of God's Word, and I'll read to us. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient for that one man should die for the people. This is God's word. You may be seated. It seems that everybody's in the garden. There's Jewish guards, Roman soldiers, the officers of the priests and the Pharisees, the disciples. Judas is there along with Peter. We should probably see ourselves there too. Because we're moving toward the cross. It was our sin that put him there. And it was our sin that brought him to this garden as well. But most importantly, Jesus is there. And this morning, I want us to see Jesus. We'll read about Judas, and we'll read about Peter, and we'll read about the guards and the other disciples, but we want to see Jesus. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about them a little bit, but not much. Because the whole purpose of this is that we would see Jesus. The most important component of our faith and of our discipleship is the vision of Christ. I've been a Christian now for over 40 years. And the single greatest help to me as a Christian has not been a list that anyone gave me to do. 
The single greatest help to me as a Christian to love Christ and to follow Christ and to obey Christ and to honor Christ is to actually see Christ. Vision generates faith and hope and love. We're going to see Jesus for the next several weeks in John, and we see him today in the arrest. We're going to see Jesus as sovereign. He said, I am. We're going to see Jesus as as submissive. He was bound and led away. When we see Jesus as the sovereign, submissive Savior, then what we want to do is simply be amazed at him and believe in him and take heart. We need heart. I need heart. You need heart. Courageous, confident. Calm, heart, we, we have that by seeing Christ. We want to follow Him. So first we see Jesus as sovereign. Verses 4 through 9 is when Jesus reveals Himself as I am. This is His sovereignty. That's a big word we use in church life a lot. And sometimes it's used in political and geopolitical world. But sovereign means supreme, the supreme power and authority within a certain sphere that's look it up in the dictionary and that's what you're going to get to be sovereign is to have the supreme power and authority within a certain sphere Jesus Christ is sovereign over all and particularly he's sovereign in this garden it's one thing to talk about Jesus being sovereign over the whole world and you say yeah well okay but what does that mean well it means that in this garden On this night, at his arrest, he is still sovereign. This garden really represents all time and all space. Something is going down in this garden, and it changes everything. Verses 1 through 3 tell us it's the Garden of Gethsemane. The other Gospels tell us it's, it's Gethsemane. The other Gospels tell us that this is where Jesus prayed that prayer, the other prayer, when he said, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, but let your will be done, not my will be done. Something eternal is getting settled in the mind of Jesus in this garden. Now, that, that, this scene that we see here of the arrest must have happened after Jesus prayed the prayer that the other Gospels told us. Because it certainly appears that now Jesus is ready to drink from that cup. His mind has been set and fixed. John tells us that Judas knew this garden because Jesus often went there with his disciples. He prayed there with them. He taught there with them. Maybe he fellowshiped there with them. He may have even had a place to stay close to this garden. So to betray Jesus... Judas handed him over to the Jewish leaders. He led them to Jesus. And there were some soldiers there, Roman soldiers, because they were going to keep the peace. They were expecting a fight. They're all there, Judas, the Jewish guards, the Roman soldiers. Some think that possibly, given the Roman soldiers, possibly up to 200 people. In this garden, that may be, I've always pictured in my head, I don't know, 10 or 12, 200 there to arrest Jesus. 
And then verse 4 really brings us into focus. It says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Here he is, 200 out, possibly up to 200 out to arrest him. He's looking around. He's gone through all of what we've already seen in John. It's night, and he knows all that's going to happen to him. He's sovereign. We call that omniscience, all-knowing. He knows everything. This is amazing. Nothing escaped his notice. I don't know how that worked its way out in actual thoughts in Jesus' mind. But he's watching it all go down. If there are 200 soldiers there, he can name every one of them. He knows what they did that day. He knows why they're there. He knows what's going on in Judas's mind and heart. He knows what is about to happen to him that they're going to bind him. He knows it's all coming. He knows all that will happen to him. Omniscience, all knowledge, sovereign, nothing escaped his notice, no surprises whatsoever, and yet he still went to the garden. He's sovereign. He did not go the other way. He did not avoid the garden. He went. And then what, what it says, it, knowing all that would happen, he came forward. He acted. There's his power. We'll see his power as well in a moment. But this is omnipotence. No one forced him. He wasn't bound at this point. If he came forward, he had to be somewhere. Was he in the crowd behind? Was he behind the disciples? Could he have hidden? Could he have run away? He doesn't. He steps forward, unforced. It's his own decision of his own volition. He faced the betrayer. He faced the band. He is in absolute control in this moment. And he says, whom do you seek? Well, he knows all things. He knows who they seek. But he's leading the event along, and he actually wants them to say it. I think Jesus wants them to say his name so that they will come to know him, at least know who it is they're arresting. At least when they say Jesus of Nazareth, they will know he's more than a man because look what happens. Verse 5, they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. It's a simple designation. It's very ordinary. Jesus, common name, Nazareth, small town. And then Jesus said to them, I am he. Now that's not such a simple response. The he is supplied in English. What Jesus actually said is, I am. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. Okay, does that sound familiar to you? We come across that for the first time in the book of Exodus. Moses was told to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. And 
Then when the people of Israel heard Moses say that, they were going to ask Moses, Moses, what's our God's name? And Moses says to God, what should I tell them? And God said, you tell them that I am who I am. I am sent you. What does that mean? It's a strange name, isn't it? It means he's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is. If it was me and you, it'd be I wasn't. And then I was, and then I will be no more. For God is, I am. He is. Jesus has used this before. In John, we have these I am statements of Jesus. He attaches I am with something about him to show that everything about him is attached to his deity, his divinity, his, his eternal nature. So, I am, Jesus said, the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the true vine. Jesus is using this word, this designation, and he uses it here. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. He's communicating that the man from Nazareth is the Son of God from all of eternity. Verse 5, Judas is there with them. Why does John and the other gospel writers always slip in these little details? They want us to see something here. Why is Judas mentioned here? He's standing there with them. Either he's being given one more opportunity to repent, or... The judgment to come on Judas is being compounded and being confirmed as he hears Jesus say, I am. In verse 6, something happens. Something. Power. Glory. The force of Jesus' personality or the confidence of his words. Something caused them to draw back and fall to the ground. This is interesting. They had no knowledge that Jesus was divine. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't say the Son of God. They said Jesus of Nazareth. They had no knowledge of his divine nature. They did not believe in him. This is not the falling down of repentance. They did not believe in Jesus. Still, the power that came from the revelation of Christ saying, I am, had effect, even if it did not have a saving effect. It had an effect on them. They draw back and they fall to the ground. But they are still not the point. Jesus is the point. It's the I am statement that is the point. Verses 7 through 9, the question and answer gets repeated. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am I'm he. Then Jesus adds, if it's you, if it's me you're seeking, let these men go. Now, that's another interesting thing. You remember in the prayer of Jesus, he said to the Father, he said, of all that you've given me, I have not lost one. And here he's making sure that happens. It tells us this is to fulfill the words of Jesus. He's making sure that his, that his, his disciples are kept 
Jesus isn't going to lose one. They're not to be killed here. They're not to be crucified. Only Jesus can be crucified. They're to be kept here. They're to be protected. They're to be kept in the name of God and in faith. They're to be kept from the evil one. They're to be kept for the mission to come. Jesus is absolutely in control. He is so in control that he's letting his disciples go with a word. He knew. He stepped forth. He secured his disciples. And something else is happening in these words where Jesus says, If it's me that you're seeking, let these men go. He's talking about the meaning of the cross. The cross is all through here. There's shadows of the cross everywhere. He said, take me. Take me to the cross. He knew where he was going. He knew it. Take me to the cross. Let these go. That's the effect of the cross of Jesus Christ. He gets taken. He gets crucified in our place that you and I get let go. We are free. His life for ours. Jesus is in absolute control here. What we want to see is the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. It's against the backdrop of a dark garden that, pre that precedes the cross. Jesus is seen as sovereign in control with power and authority, knowing everything, stepping forward into it, revealing himself as the I am, protecting his disciples, while knocking the guards off their feet. Jesus Christ is sovereign. We need to understand this. We need our faith built on this. Our Savior is not the conquered one. Our Savior is not a victim. He is not a casualty. Our Savior is not standing in the garden on this night because something went wrong with His plan. Our Savior is here by design, in control, as Jesus of Nazareth and the Son of God. We really need to see Him as such if we're going to have any real faith and any real confidence in Him. We rest our faith completely completely on this one standing in the garden in control we have to rest ourselves on a sovereign one to have any hope of a life to come and the one we're living in right now our savior is sovereign i hope you see that verses 10 and 11 a transition happens it's just, it's a, it, it introduces peter to us the transition introduces peter to us for just a moment, we're going to come back to him later, but for just a moment, we get Peter in contrast with Judas. Yes, Peter is going to deny Jesus later, about an hour from now, from the text. But Peter loves Christ. We're going to, he's going to return. But something else is happening in this transition. Peter's action here is not only being contrasted with Judas, but is being compared to his own action to come when he denies Christ. Here he pulls out a sword, chops off an ear. In a moment, he's going to say, I don't even know him. What's going on? I think what's going on is Peter's afraid. Putting, taking the sword out and, of his sheath and striking the high priest's servant's ear is not an act of courage. It's an act of fear. You know what fear makes you do? We call it fight or flight. 
Here he fights. In a moment, he'll flee. Peter's being sifted. He's being sanctified. Jesus says, put your sword back. I'm with you. I've got a cup to drink. And that's really the purpose of Peter in this moment, is to get us back to Christ. Put your sword back. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? It's to take us from, not from, but to add to the sovereignty of Jesus, to add to that his submission, his willingness to drink the cup. I'm not going to fight my way out of this. I'm going to drink the cup. That is courage. He knows what the cup is. He's completely aware of what's coming, and he goes right into it which is the second part of the vision of Christ, his submission. Verse 12, Jesus is bound. The text rightly says that the band of soldiers, look at verse 12, the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Yes, that is true. Yes, they did. But they bound him only because he submitted to them. They bound him only because he submitted to the word and the will of God. I want you to imagine this. The one who holds the world in his hand is handing himself over to sinful people. The testimony of Scripture of the apostles is that Jesus gave himself up. We read it a moment ago. Numerous times in the epistles, Jesus is said to have given himself Given himself up, given himself over, given himself as a ransom, given himself for the Apostle Paul. Jesus is said to have given himself up. What we are meant to see here is the humility of Jesus to submit himself. Now, humiliation is coming. Those are two different things. Humiliation is coming. They're going to beat him and strip him and mock him and crucify him. But first comes humility, where we see Jesus submit himself to the humiliation. That's what's happening here. In chapter 13, in humility, Jesus took a basin and a towel. You remember that scene. It was the night just a few hours before this incident in the garden. It's the final meal, and Jesus got up from the meal, and he took a basin of water and a towel and wrapped himself wrapped it around his waist and he knelt down in front of each of the disciples and he washed all of their feet. It was an act of humility with basin and towel in his hands. Here Jesus puts his hands out so that others will take him. They're going to take him. Bind him. They're going to lead him away. He's a lamb being led to slaughter. What's binding Jesus? The love of God. What's binding Jesus? What are the bonds on him? The love of Christ. Love. John said in chapter 13, Jesus loved his own. He loved them to the end. Here he is at the end loving them. Putting his hands out. Bind me, take me to the cross because I love 
those whom the Father has given me. Take me to the cross. I love my Father. I love His will. I love the salvation that will be earned at the cross. I love my people. I love them. Love is what's holding the hands of Jesus together as He's led astray. Jesus is submissive. Our Savior is not a self-serving egomaniac. Our Savior is not motivated by the ego needs of fame and control and dominance and getting respect and being the center of attention. His aim is singularly to accomplish the will of the Father by saving sinners, and the way to do that is through submission. And he did it because of love. He loves the Father. He loves you. He loves me. We need this vision of Jesus to really believe in him and to know what it means to follow him. We follow him in submission. And then our sovereign and the submissive one in the one man, Jesus Christ, becomes our Savior. They lead, him, they lead him away. And this is what happened. Acts 2, Peter, same guy who here is cutting off ears, denying in a bit, gets filled with the Holy Spirit. God works in his life, sanctifies him. He's restored, and he stands up not long after in the book of Acts. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, there's our word from John, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up, delivered up, you ready for this? Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Sovereign, absolute control. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified him, you killed him at the hands of lawless men. Happened right here. There they are. There they are, the Jewish officers and the Roman soldiers. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's all planned, it's all already known, and then it's all carried out voluntarily at the hands of lawless men. The sovereign and submissive one is our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, what do we do with this? This morning, I hope that we see Christ the greatest component of our spiritual growth, of our faith, of our faithfulness to Christ, of our love for Him, of our joy in Him, of our hope in Him, the greatest component is to be able to see Him, to have vision. We see Jesus by hearing words. That's what happens. We don't see Him. We don't see Him face to face. We love Him, though we don't see Him. We will see him face to face, but now we don't. What do we do? We hear words. 
We see, Christians, spiritually, we see by hearing. So we hear these words, and the point is that we would see, have vision. The single greatest component of faith and faithfulness to Christ is vision of Christ. And so this morning, ask God by the power of the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart to see who Jesus Christ really is, as He is. And the only way we will have true vision of Jesus Christ is if we read the words of Scripture. It's the only way. Brothers and sisters, many versions and visions of the Savior will be flying around until Christ comes back. But the only one that is true, the only one that is accurate, the only one that can save you, the only one that will build your life, the only one to put your feet on is the vision of Jesus Christ given to us in the Word. We see by hearing. And I hope even in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the arrest of Jesus, see Him as you hear the words. What do we do with this? We stand amazed. Yes, we say, we got to make it practical. Yes, there's, yes. What could be more practical, though? When you're watching the sovereign one put his hands out in submission to the will of the Father, but to stand amazed at him. We sing the song, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. There he is. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Well, here he is. Here I am. I am. Stand amazed at that. Worship Christ. Pray to him. Talk to him. Look at him. Sing to him. Stand amazed. What do we do with this? We believe. He's bound and he's led away for you and me. We're just beginning these chapters. We've still got a few more weeks until we get to the cross. But that's where we're going. He died for us. He took our penalty. That is not a truth to move on from. It is not a truth to move on from. Christian, do not say, I got the cross, now tell me what to do. The cross is not a truth to move on from. The cross of Jesus Christ is the truth. It's the center. It's the ground. It's everything. Believe in this. Trust this. Drink from this every single day. If you're not a Christian, you might be trying to figure out, what do I do? Like, what, like I'm going to this church, just give me the lit. Where's the bulletin? Just tell me what to do. It's done. Christ died. Bound in hands, all the way to the cross, stripped, mocked, crucified, for you and me because he bore the wrath of God against our sin in his flesh, in his body. And faith 
is taking every ounce of your whole being and putting it right on him and resting it on him and saying, I trust you. And apart from that, I will die separated from God and I will go to hell. But if I trust Christ, this is faith, I trust Christ to pay the penalty. He has paid the penalty for my sin. I trust him to forgive me of my sin, to reconcile me to God, to fill me with the Spirit, to make me new, and to get me all the way home to glory. Come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's all about the cross of Christ. That's, it's not about what you do. It's about what he's done. What do we do with this? Take heart. That's what we do. Jesus is still sovereign. Take heart. This past week, you may have had those moments. Maybe you had a moment where you, you know how you have those moments where it's like it's something catches up inside of you, just a, a punch of fear, just, you just tense up. Maybe you had one. Anybody have one? Take heart. He's still sovereign. He saves to the end. The cup of wrath, Jesus said, put your sword in your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What is that cup? That cup is the cup of wrath. It is empty. Do you know what the cup is now? It's the cup of salvation. And we raise it. He saves to the end. Take heart. Take heart because no one took his life from him. He is not a victim. He's the victor. Take heart because no one takes his own from his hand. By faith, we are in his hand. We belong to him. We are his sheep. He knows us by name. And nothing will separate us from him. Nothing will take us out of his hand. Nothing will stop the completion of his plan. Nothing will stop the good work of Christ. He will get us all the way home. Faithful is he who began it. He will complete it. What do we do with this? We submit to him. It's Peter himself who's not looking good in the Gospel of John who later writes in his letter called 1 Peter. By that time, he's been through it. He's been sifted and he's been built back up. And by the time he writes the letter of 1 Peter, this is what he says. He talk about submission and suffering. This is what he said. He said, it's his calling, it was his calling to suffer for you, and it's your calling to suffer for him. It's your calling. And he says, you submit yourself. Submit yourself under the hand of God. Submit yourself to God. You follow Christ in this way. It's the same Savior. So what do we do with this? We're just looking at Jesus in the garden, just wanting to see him. We see him with vision. We stand amazed at him. We believe in him. We take heart. And then we submit. Now that's a lot to get out of the arrest of Jesus. I know it is. But brothers and sisters, I just want to say, if there's ever a time, in at least our lifetime, for Christians to have a vision of Christ to stay faithful, it is now. There's joy there's love, there's a lot of laughter in the body of Christ. 
But we need to see Christ so that we will walk with him and stay faithful to him. Would you join me in the next several weeks? Start reading 18, 19, 20, 21. Read all the way to the end. Keep reading. Let's pray that God will restore us, that God will build us as a congregation as we meditate upon Jesus in these chapters. Thank you, Father, for this word. And we do ask for your work among us in this congregation. Just take a few seconds. How's God spoken to you? What is he calling you to today? What do you see?